0: This is the myheart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with vitalengine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Alain Bouchard, a Cardiology Specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension.
1: Well, uh, welcome to our uh, podcast on MyHeart.net, and uh, today we're going to talk about the non-statin uh, therapy for lowering uh, LDL cholesterol or the bad cholesterol, and with us today we have the illustrious, you know, Professor John Castelline, who's actually Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the Department of Vascular Medicine of the Academic Medical Center at the University of Amsterdam. Uh, he's had um, a very important role. Uh, he was chair of g- genetics in cardiovascular disease. Uh, he's worked and, and published in Nature Genetics, New England Journal of Medicine, Gemma, Circulation, Lancet. And now he's the uh, chief medical officer at the company uh, New Amsterdam Pharma uh, in Amsterdam. And, and we're very happy Uh, that you could take the time, John, out of your busy schedule and and maybe uh, shed some more light on the non-statin treatment of LDL. Thank you, John.
0: You're very welcome, Alain. It's an honor to be here. Thank you very much.
1: Very good. Um, So we know that the um, statin therapy have been really kind of a uh, a cornerstone treatment of patients with uh, coronary artery disease uh, for the last 30 years. Uh, we've demonstrated, multiple studies have demonstrated that in patients that have coronary artery disease, LDL is a bad player. Uh, if you lower uh, the LDL, even with a moderate uh, intensity statin by 30%, you can lower uh, cardiovascular event, you know, by about the same amount, uh, 30%. Even in patients in adults that don't have coronary artery disease, but do have risk factors and elevated LDL, we know that statin, even moderate intensity uh, statin can lower and prevent coronary artery disease by about the same amount. So John, let me ask you, why do we need non-statin therapy for the treatment of our patients with coronary artery disease?
0: Allow allow me to take one step back and look at the um, accumulated data from the statin trials. I think two extremely important points have come forward during all the meta-analyses that especially the Oxford group have done. The first observation is, is that we still have not reached the bottom of LDL where there is no more benefit. We've gone to like 35 milligram, even 25 milligram per deciliter and have still not seen that there is no more additional benefit. So the relationship between LDL and benefit is a straight line, which is very unusual for biology because almost all lines or relationships in biology are curvilinear. At some point on the curve, you stop having benefit and actually the line goes flat. We haven't reached that point yet. So that's number one. The second is is that from the trials, we have learned that it is the absolute LDL difference that counts and the number of years you are exposed to that lower LDL. So therefore someone like me, who is not particularly high risk and started taking a statin at the age of 45, and I'm now uh, slightly over 65, I've been on that drug for 20 years. So you you can calculate that that has given, a, and I'm, I'm only taking 10 milligrams of, uh, of rosuvastatin, but nevertheless, that's a 30, 35% difference in LDL over 20 years. So hopefully I have protected myself against atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. So that is where we currently are. And on top of that, I think that people are beginning to realize that this mantra of going to the highest dose of the most intensive statin is not working for a large number of people and it's interesting that we do that in our field but we don't do it in the hypertension field nor in the diabetes field where combination early on is much more usual a much more kind of run of the mill and so i think that uh, especially professor ray has published a number of articles some of them some of which I was a co-author on, is that we might need to let that mantra go and start thinking about combination therapy. But the moment you start thinking about combination therapy, to get back to your question, then you think about non-statin therapy. So suppose you're, uh, you're an American or a Dutch patient, you've had a PCI and a small, uh, and a small inferior heart attack, You are on 40 milligrams of atorvastatin. You've tried 80, but it it, it didn't feel right. You had complaints and you don't want it. You've read on the internet that maybe, you know. So you're on 40 of atorvastatin and your LDL is 102. Um, Then if you look at the guidelines in Europe or the guidelines in the United States, we now say that very high risk patients should be on an additional therapy. Now, that can only be non-statin therapy. So where can you go? You can go to azitamide, which will give you, it's generic, it is quite cheap, it is extremely safe, one of the safest drugs I know, but the kick it will give you uh, on that 102 milligram per deciliter LDL is not like big. So it will help you a little bit, but it will not really reduce your risk if you take it. Then the next thing you can do is to go to bampidoic acid. Now, bampidoic acid on its own um, is about as efficacious as acidamide. But if you take it in the combo, that is much better, of course, and you can achieve somewhere between 35 and 38 percent LDL. Load. So that is really becoming because 38 percent of 102, then you're really, you know, you're at least getting below 70. If for some reason you wanna have a bigger kick, you go to one of the injectables. You go to evalocumab, alurocumab, or these days, inclycerin. Now, these are great drugs. They are very safe. They are extremely potent. And inclycerin, you only need three injections in the first year, two injections in the second year. And for the monoclonals, you need to take them every two weeks, or if you have one of those little machines, you can take them once a month. But one of the things that we have underestimated with injectables is that in my clinic, I don't know about your clinic, Alain, but in my clinic, mean age is 68. And the vast majority of these people, when I ask them, what do you want? What do you want a pill in your pill box on on the chimney? Or do you want an injection? They always ask me then, Will that get rid of the pillbox? And I say, sorry, you also have a little blood pressure and a little this and a little that, and you just had a heart attack. So if you have anticoagulants, you have beta blockers, you have... I say, no, sorry. And then they, in the vast majority, say, I would prefer um, a tablet to add to my pillbox because that's what they used to. So that is where we currently are. You can go the monoclonals, or inclytherin, and then... In terms of the injectables it's very hard to get them reimbursed it's calculated that in europe out of a hundred prescriptions eight prescriptions are filled with an injectable simply because of insurance companies or countries like mine where drugs are basically free but the government determines which drugs you get and which drugs you don't so that's where we are
1: yeah i'm not sure people in the united states would like that for the government to decide what what to take. I don't uh, think so, no. You've got the problem with the vaccine, you know. But, uh, John, you've made some very, very important points. And, and the first one was your analogy with hypertension. And you are so right. I mean, we tend to uh, really, when we use a statin, you know, the data is where they talk 80 and, and statin 40, some of the highest, high-intensity statin, and this is what we've been preaching, and this is what we've been doing. But I think a lot of times we we bring about a lot of side effects, and and maybe uh, bring about some of the reluctance, you know, for our, our patients to take the statin because of these side effects with um, you know large muscle uh, pain. And and your analogy with hypertension, uh, which is so interesting to me because it is so accurate. And this is what we do. I mean, instead of going to a drug to the maximal tolerated dose. We tend to start sometimes when the blood pressure is high, sometimes with two antihypertensive medication, uh, where it's better tolerated, not such a high dose, and you have actually demonstrated better effect on the hypertension. So uh, I, I really like this analogy a lot. Uh, you brought also some very important point. I mean, who are the candidates? Are uh, the mostly the patients that high that are at high risk? I mean, patients with coronary artery disease that keep having event after event after event, and uh, or the patients that uh, that are born, you know, with this uh, genetic problem of familial hypercholesterolemia where LDL is in the excess of 190 milligram per deciliter. I know you use, um, you know, nanomoles in Europe. Yeah, but
0: that doesn't matter. I can think in milligram per deciliter also. uh, and then finally, you brought about uh,
1: some of the non-statin therapy that we have available. You know, you mentioned azetamide, bempidoic benp- acid, um, as well as the injectable, like PCSK9 antibodies, and uh, finally, this inclisiran, the smaller RNA, uh, which kind of works, you know, at the liver level, at the level of the liver. So what are what is the future in non-statin therapy? I know you're working at New Amsterdam with a... Uh, uh, with CTP inhibitor, maybe you could explain to us to us a little bit uh, what is a CTP inhibitor, what, what is it, how does it work, and what's been the history? Uh, because I, you know, when we when we were doing research, uh, Pfizer had this protocol on torcetrapib, and I thought this was the holy grail of uh, yeah. treatment, you know, in patients with coronary artery disease, but it didn't turn
0: out that way. Yeah, so that it's an inc- incredibly interesting history. And again, so um, the genetics and the genomics of CTP are crystal clear. Low CTP activity in humans, genetically determined, is associated with less heart attacks, less stroke, less chronic kidney disease, and less heart failure. No doubt about it. Like seven studies, nature, New England, everything. So the genetics were very good, but the genetics came with a big surprise. What was the intermediate between lowering CTP and heart attacks that was responsible for that? It was EPOB and non-HDL and LDL. It had nothing to do with the HDL part. So in the development of these drugs, two things went extremely wrong and it was very unlucky, I could almost say. So Pfizer developed the first drug, which did its job. But that drug had an off-target effect. It actually ended up in your adrenal. And it promoted the synthesis of cortisol, endothelin-1, and aldosterone. And that is terrible because if, you, if your aldosterone goes up, you retain sodium, and you excrete potassium, your blood pressure will go up. You'll have hypokalemia, which is arrhythmic, etc., and it's vasoconstrictive. And for people with heart disease, that's terrible. So the first drug, by pure bad luck, had an off-target effect that had nothing to do with CTP because I was actually uh, part of the steering committee of that trial, and after the trial, they infused the drug in rats, and rats don't have CTP. And blood pressure in those rats went up in like two minutes. So this is a universal principle of this drug that has nothing, so that drug was a huge mistake. Then all the others came afterwards, and they still thought, like you and I did in those days, that raising HDL would be the holy grail. Unfortunately, we now know that we were wrong. We were completely wrong. Raising HDL cholesterol with a small molecule, like a CTAP inhibitor, that will not prevent heart attacks or strokes. Actually, the Roche trial with dulcetrapib, called Dull outcomes, I'm sure you still remember that, raised HDL by 40%, didn't do anything on LDL and had no MACE effect whatsoever. So that trial ended the HDL hypothesis in a way. Then slowly we were learning, 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 and then came REVEAL, which is the Merck trial. All those drugs had very good effects on HDL, but quite abysmal effects on LDL. That drug lowered LDL by 17% so a lot less than acetamide, but because they had 30,000 patients in the trial, the absolute difference was 11 milligram per deciliter, and that exactly predicted the 9% MACE reduction in that trial. So that trial not only proved or validated the CTP hypothesis, but it also showed that CTP had nothing to do with HDL increase. It had everything to do with an LDL decrease. And so... Then we started to look everywhere for a CTAP inhibitor that lowered LDL because that's what we needed. And we found that drug, in fact, at Mitsubishi Tanabe because our drug at 10 milligrams lowers LDL by 50%, while the Merck, the Lilly, and the Pfizer drugs lowered LDL by like 17 16% with like 100 or 150 milligrams. So obicetrapib is in a very different kind of ball game. It is very efficacious on LDL, and that's what we need. Now, listen, we will need to do outcome trials to prove all of this, of course, and we run a large phase G program. But So that is this somewhat strange history. The first drug was a terrible drug that had off-target effects, And the rest of the drugs were powered on an HDL increase that we now know is ineffective. It doesn't do anything. So we finally now have a drug that lowers LDL, non-HDL, and EpoB adequately, and is being tested in a very large trial program. So it's a long history. It's a long, convoluted, complicated history. Yeah. So um, you have
1: currently, you know, three clinical trials looking at outcomes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this?
0: Yeah. Now, one of them is actually right, what you just mentioned, is in heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. It's called, the trial is called Brooklyn. And it's interesting, Brooklyn is an American name, of course, of a a borough in, in New York, but it's also a Dutch village. So that's, and because New Amsterdam, we only have three people working in Holland. The vast majority of the people are in the United States. So I see it much more as as an American company than a Dutch company. But we still took some things from Holland and put them in our trial name. So that Brooklyn, it's 300 FH patients that we are treating for a full year. Then we have Broadway. And Broadway used to be called Bredeweg. So before... Uh, the, the Duke of York took over New, New York from us when it was still New Amsterdam, the name of Broadway was Bredewerk. So that's the second Broadway trial. That is a very large trial. It's 2,400 ASCVD patients um, that actually um, are going to be exposed to our drug for also for over a year. And those two trials together constitute the phase three lipid lowering program. So that those trials are gonna tell us, listen, is the lipid lowering effect maintained over time? Uh, is it indeed as robust as we saw in phase two? LDL 50%, EpoB between 30 and 35, non-HDL around 40%. So are those numbers still keeping up in, in phase three? And it's gonna tell us whether the drug is safe in a very large number of patients. Now we haven't seen any safety issues so far. We've excluded the blood pressure, we've excluded everything else. So the drug seems exceedingly safe, well tolerated. So those, that's the lipid trial. And then as last, and we didn't want, we didn't want it to make the same mistake that some companies made. When we are going to the regulatory authorities, we want to tell them we have also enrolled completely an outcome trial. So that you can actually look at, the, look at the data that are there at that point in time. That's 9,000 patients with a medium median follow-up of around four years, or we have defined two and a half years at least after the last patient in. Because as I said in the beginning, it's not only the LDL difference, it's the time. And that's where the monoclonals went a bit into the woods because they actually had trials that were like 2.4 years, which is not long enough because for lipid lowering, you need some time for the couple of of curves to kind of dissociate. So that is where we are. And um, so we are happily uh, enrolling patients in the United States for all three trials, um, and in Europe uh, for all three trials, and also in China and Japan. So we've also made the decision to make this program as global as we could. Because we, for example, understand, to give you an example that in China, people are really hesitant to take high doses of statins. They're very afraid of the diabetes side effect. They don't like high doses anyway. In Japan, they don't like high doses at all. So for them, combination therapy makes a lot of sense and they don't like injectables either. So then an oral potent well tolerated low dose drug makes a lot of sense for China. So we wanted immediately to involve China and Japan into our uh, uh, global program.
1: There's certainly um, a category of patients that really respond poorly, um, you know, with side effects on the with the statin is Asian women. Uh, And therefore, it makes sense to really go uh, with a lower dose of statin and a non-statin. Well, John, this is very exciting. You know, I think with the statin, we've been able to lower um, coronary events by 30%. There's still 70% of the patients out there that are still at risk of coronary event. And I think um, there's a lot of room for improvement in our therapy. And we certainly hope that CTP inhibitor becomes, you know, part of the treatment of uh, patients with coronary artery disease or, or patients that are at very high risk with very high LDL cholesterol, like um, AFH. Yeah. And um, I think it's it sounds like a very exciting you know, uh, future
0: uh,
1: for our patients with uh, therapies that keep getting better and better.
0: That's exactly what we hope too, Alain, of course. Yes.
1: John, thank you very much for your time. John Castelline. You're very welcome. All the way from... Uh, amsterdam and the netherlands and uh, thank you for your collaboration
0: thanks alan thanks a million thank you john to learn more from our team of cardiologists please visit us at myheart.net you can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on facebook and twitter and be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode